Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to This Song Is Yours, a music podcast where we chat to a new guest each week, talk about their life and creative endeavours and talk to them about some of the music they love. Our show works by chatting to our guests about music, but also getting them to make you a playlist of the songs they love. You can find the link to our playlist in the show notes. Welcome to episode 11. I'm your host, Simon Fink. Our guest today is one of the greatest bands of the last 20 years, The Avalanches. We Will Always Love You is their incredible third record, and it's available to the world tomorrow. In today's episode, I talk to Robbie Chater from the band about the new record's insane guest list, the pressure when there's 16 years between records, and the best cities in the world to go record shopping. Here we go. Our guest today is one half of Australia's greatest exports, the Avalanches. Fresh from celebrating the 20-year anniversary of their modern classic, Since I Left You, the band are now releasing their third studio record, entitled We Will Always Love You. They've won awards and praise the world over, and now they're out to win over your heart. Please welcome to This Song Is Yours, Robbie Jader from The Avalanches. Hi, Robbie. Hi, Simon. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really good, really good. That's good. Uh, firstly, congratulations on We Will Always Love You, which is out tomorrow. Uh, it, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous record and um, not, to, not to blow smoke up your ass, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great record. Um, how are you guys uh, feeling about the, it finally being out? We're feeling we're feeling really good, really excited, and thank you. It's lovely of you to say. Um, you know, I guess it's always an unknown when you make uh, make a record like this, and you know, really, there's only a few people hearing it as it goes along. So, it's always a bit of an- nervous anticipation about if, whether it will connect with people or not. But we're feeling really good, and we're feeling like we achieved what we set out to achieve. So, it's a, it's an exciting time, you know, and especially in a year like this. We haven't been able to tour or do shows or connect with people in any other way, so it'll be lovely. Hopefully, the music will really connect with people when it comes out tomorrow. It um it has a beautiful the record itself has a beautiful catalyst. Um, the I think it's the golden golden vessel record. Is that correct? The story between Anne Dryan uh, oh. and Carl Sagan. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about that and how that uh, I guess evolved into a record? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it began with uh, discussions about like about what we wanted to explore with this album and we were kind of talking, maybe it's part of getting a little older or something, but we were talking about, you know, our own mortality and exploring who we are as people beyond, you know, just our um, immediate sort of identities, like, for example, like, I'm Robbie, I'm a male, I'm a musician, I'm Australian, you know, I have we have all these labels, but beyond that, you know, on a level of consciousness, we feel like we're all so, so much more vast. So we sort of wanted to make a record exploring that and what happens when we die and just, you know, bigger themes. And um, so we began that that process. And then as 
we went along, we discovered this beautiful story of Andrew Yin and Carl Sagan who were um, hired by NASA in like 78, I think, to or, uh, compile these golden records for the Voyager spacecraft, which were going to be the first spacecraft ever to leave our solar system. And after they'd explored the planets, we're going to keep floating out there in outside our solar system and float on and on and on forever. So they thought they would make a, a golden record and it's gold because it could last for potentially, you know, a billion years. Um, and a golden record of the sounds and information of planet Earth in case intelligent life ever ever found these spacecraft floating out there that. one day. Yeah, so uh, it was called the Voyager Golden Record Project and, and Carl Sagan, uh, who's, you know, quite a famous astronomer, and, and Andrew and were um, put in charge of curating this disc. So it was almost like making a mixtape of, like, planet Earth <laughs> and how do you possibly choose what, what goes on such a record, you know. So they began this process and there's whale sounds and, Chuck Berry and Mozart and Beethoven and all different languages and and um, Anne thought well it would be fantastic to record um, her heart waves and brain waves in an ECG scan and, and, and embed them on the disc as well in case maybe um, some civilization was intelligent enough to maybe they could learn about our bi- biology. Um, so they organised for her to go into Bellevue Hospital in New York and have these scans done. And the day before she went to have these scans, um, Carl Sagan proposed to her. So they'd obviously just slowly and in a beautiful way fallen in love while compiling this record. But it was a, came as a complete surprise to her. And she went ahead and did the scans. And then um, she realised, she had this beautiful moment of realisation where she, she, she realised, oh, my goodness, like the sound of her heart and and the vibrations of her brain of a young woman in love were going to be captured forever on this disc and we'll be floating out there long after planet earth is is no more and 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 when i heard this story i just thought that is the most beautiful beautiful and romantic thing i've ever heard and it, it's it, we related on so many levels on you know because it's it's talking about sound and travel and also our own um mortality and you know and the way that um uh, we, you know, when we're recorded on, when we make recorded music, it's kind of like that, you know, that will live on long after we're, we're here no more. So we loved all of those things that that story tapped into and it was kind of a catalyst for um, for this record. It is a very, uh, not necessarily like a love song record, but it's an extremely romantic record in terms of that it seems to kind of touch on all aspects of that romantic spectrum Um whether it be uh, out like love or love lost, um, all the songs they do seem to have like this little uh, vibe or like aura yeah. about them. Uh, the record itself, the guest list is truly astounding. Obviously, it's yourself and Tony as the band, um, as the avalanches, but some of the guests, uh, the, the featured guests are incredible. Um, I won't go through all of them just due to, to time restraints, but even just a sample of guests, uh, you have Karen O, MGMT, Mick Jones from The Clash, Jamie XX, Sampa the Great. When you initially started the third record, was there always a guest list that you had in mind or was it just that it kind of happened organically over time when more and more people joined the record? It just, it just, sort of grew as it went along and and really it kept the songs lead the way like as 
we if there's a piece of music and there, there was Tony and I and our collaborator Andy who we worked very closely with on this record and as pieces of music kind of took shape we would um, just spend a long time actually it was almost like sampling like just thinking whose voice may be maybe perfect for this piece of music and um, you know, so it's not just like wish list of, of you know well known people or anything. It's like we it's it's a long process, and often I'll sample a bit of someone like say Perry Farrell's one of his older songs, and we'll match his voice on the song. And go, that's it, that's perfect. I wonder if we could ever get in touch, or I wonder if he would ever have heard of us, you know. And then we would reach out, and and you know, sometimes we're lucky enough that maybe they know who we are, or that or they don't, but they're they're curious and. And we go from there. So, yeah. I did hear that there was um a like a bit of a mission statement, not a, like a screening process, if you will, but like a mission statement <laughs> that you gave to guests um, in terms to see whether the like for lack of a better word, whether the vibe was right for the record. What what was that yeah. kind of um what was that kind of like? That was well, it was more like I think it was just some notes I had from internally between Tony and I and our friend Andrew. Um, just to kind of get our heads around, like, what are we doing here? What's this record about? So it was just for us, and I, it was, there were some notes I wrote because um, the record we made before this one, Wildflower, took 16 years, and it was almost like the reason it took so long was because we were almost finding what the record was as we went. So I was like, we are not doing that again. We're going to have a clear idea of what we're doing before we start. <laughs> so it was kind of a mission statement for us. But then as we spoke to collaborators, I was able to share that, and it was just kind of – a brief summary of, of what you and I just spoke about and the golden record and also about um, my own journey and some struggles I've had in life and just just um, about a, a journey from darkness to light really, which is something that we can all relate to in our own way. So I spoke about some of those things and then um, and even some more esoteric concepts about like exploring the afterlife and what happens when we die and stuff like that. And so then if, if we got in contact with someone, I would send that through and it was a great way to, well, not screening as you say, but like it was a great way to see where someone's head was at and some people would say, you guys are crazy. I do not know what you're talking about. Maybe like we'll work together another time. <laughs> <laughs> and some, some people would say, oh, my God, this – I, I get it. I get it. You know, and then it, it would go from there, and we would start corresponding. And um, yeah, was there anyone that you kind of, uh, and obviously no, no need to name or shame, but anyone that you kind of really had your heart set on or wanted to, and, and then it just kind of didn't align in terms of whether that be the the mission statement or just didn't kind of work out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even with. Um, Anne, Andrew, and like she was, we were set up to, uh, for her to come into the studio and I was going to have, just have a conversation with her about the golden record and her life. And we were going to use snippets of her voice, um, as sort of interludes between the songs on the album. And then, um, the day of that session, actually it got canceled and, and, and I never found out why, but I just assumed it was probably like a very, very personal story for her. And it's obviously, you know, Carl has since passed and it's, it's probably, you know, incredible, incredibly um, personal thing to share and maybe she just didn't feel up to it or something. So there's that, um, that's one example of like of something we had planned that didn't eventuate. But then in the end um, she gave us permission to use her image on the album cover so it kind of came full, full circle. It was lovely that she was part of the album in the end. But um, there was lots of, lots of, 
like, um, for example, with Cornelius, um, the Japanese musician, like we had another song that was probably like one of the better songs we'd done for this record, but just for time reasons it didn't get finished. And there's, there's a million like things we're scheduling and especially then when COVID hit, you know, lots of things remained half finished or didn't make it or, yeah. Yeah, of course. I know the band had done multiple sessions in LA for the record with some of the guests um, in studio. With COVID then hitting, what percentage did that change of guests you could work with in the studio compared to uh, those that you had to then work with remotely? Um, it was probably like 50-50, I guess, um, which, you know, for us was fantastic. Like those experiences of being in the studio and um, and especially for a sample-based act where in the past it's like our records are long, lab- laborious, lonely affairs. You know, you were just at home sometimes for a decade <laughs> making a record <laughs> and it's like, we just felt like right now we couldn't, like as I mentioned, Wildflower took 16 years, the record before this one, so we just um, couldn't almost physically do that again right now. So this was a way, collaborating with people was a way of uh, making a record quicker but also having life experiences. It's like it's almost like I want to, you know, I want to be out of the office, you know, I want to be in the studio with real musicians and and connecting with those people and learning, you know, it's amazing when you're in studio with someone for a few days or a week and, and you're like, Oh, that's, that's how you do that. Oh, that's how you edit, you know, a track after, you know, that's how you mix a song or, you know, and it was really, Oh, it was fantastic for me just to be learning and soaking up information because, you know, we made our first record as a bedroom record with self-taught musicians. So the only way I know how to do things is how I just figured out how to do them myself. So this was wonderful. Just, just being around other musicians and learning how they do things as well. In that time, does going from recording in your own bedroom or apartment to then uh, recording at at somewhere like Perry Farrell's house, mm. do you kind of just look around and go, oh, oh well, this is definitely a change from my uh, yeah. my Melbourne setup, my Melbourne it, studio? Exactly. And that, that's, that was, you know, like I think at the beginning of this chat you asked how we're feeling about the record. But when I reflect on those moments, it's like it's already been the most wonderful experience and it's not even out yet, you know. It's like being at, at Perry's house in Santa Monica and his wife Etty was there and she was so lovely and we are all sitting around the table and the kids and the dogs everywhere and having a meal and dashing down to the studio in the basement and doing some recording and then back upstairs and eating ice cream and hanging out and talking about life. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, and I grew up like in the 90s listening to Jane's Addiction and, you know, like, oh, like one of my favourite bands. And so it was like it's kind of like, um, you know, though it doesn't, it doesn't go, it doesn't, pa- those moments don't pass us by. You know, we would, we left his place and just sat in the car and we're like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's, we'll always remember that, you know. Yeah, of it's, course. Like, it's really special, man. It's really special. Yeah. Yeah. With quite a lot of the collaborations taking place in LA and, uh, you guys are already quite popular over there and have quite a bit of success overseas. Would you ever consider relocating the band to Los Angeles to um, facilitate more collaborations and opportunities? Yeah, yeah. Um, because when you're there, like I was just hanging out there for months at a time and things just happen. Um, and, it, and it also allows room for 
um, just that direct communication with an artist and, oh, hey, you're in town, I'm in town, let's just do something. And it, it doesn't have to be scheduled through management and long flights booked and, and someone else is on tour and it's just kind of a logistical nightmare. So, the, like, I found, like, when we were hanging out there, things just would naturally just happen very, very easily and often just artists communicating with artists and no management involved at all and people just jumping in the studio just for fun. You know, so it allows that kind of thing to happen. But I mean, we've always we've been talking about it for years, um, and we're going to relocate next year, I think, because more, more just for touring reasons, though, because um, there's just so many opportunities to to work and tour and and make a living and be close to Europe. And you know, the flight from Melbourne over over there for every gig is just kind of, you know. It's uh, sixteen hours, and it's pretty crazy. And so we just need to be based over there, just to make a li- just to make a living. To be perfectly honest, you know, like that touring and doing shows is the only way bands can pay the rent. You know, so yeah, of course. With the record being guest heavy, how does one prepare for a tour uh, for something like this? Unless you do plan on taking out all those guests on the road, which um, would be an incredible tour. Um, <laughs> would, wouldn't it? How would you usually approach that? And then I guess how does that change with COVID and, and having to be creative with the mm. restrictions possibly put in place next year? Yeah, I mean, it's all up in the air and everybody, every musician I know is trying to figure it out at the moment and every promoter and every festival. I, I just hope that um, we don't lose what we had and that magic of connection you know that you get at a gig or get at a festival with a hundred thousand people because i mean we're doing we're planning a um a zoom oh not a zoom but you know like an online sort of gig dj gig for december and um the the infrastructure is in place now like the companies that host it and stream it and sell tickets and you know it's like the the ticket master for for um streamed concerts are all that's all set up and I worry that it's all so easy now and um, that that'll become a default setting or something and that um, – because, you know, often festivals are like a big risk financially for whoever runs them. It's often a labour of love for them. You know, it's like a year's work to put on every festival. And I hope that, you know, we don't lose that, that you know, so – because we're looking at shows in Australia for like March and April and it's like, well, if they're half capacity and they have to be outdoors and like can – can we even afford to do it? Like, will we even break it even? Is it sustainable? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah. And in terms of our own show, like I think we're going to bring it back more to the art form of sampling and just have Tony and I deconstructing our songs and bringing along a bunch of records and actually um, doing that kind of Wizard of Oz thing where we like show how a song's deconstructed and put back together and, and do that, do that as, as, part of our show so i think it'll just be the two of us that will still i'm sure it'll still be incredible though. i'm sure that you guys <laughs> won't have any problems selling them out um and and just to your other point i think that um there is there's a lot of um they have made it quite easy for live streams to to occur and yeah uh, for acts to still make a living but i i don't think that um anyone has been able to pull off the same experience as like a live that live feeling, the chill that you get when you're seeing a band, wherever it is, I don't think that's yeah. been uh, manufactured yet. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, like some of the bigger acts I've seen do live streams at the moment can build sets and, you know, it's almost like a TV spectacular, or something, <laughs> you know, and they have guests and this and that. And But um, 
that's for acts that are already established and have money to play with, you know. But I think it's it's going to be really difficult for for um, smaller acts to achieve that, you know. And it, it's a, a festival is a level level playing field. Everybody's on the same stage, and it gives it that beautiful opportunity for an unknown band to come on, you know, before right before a bigger act and blow, kick their ass, you know, and blow them off stage and be be exposed to all these people that would never normally have seen them. I just hope that I hope we get back to that. Hundred percent. I think that a number of great bands have been found through maybe getting to a festival earlier in the day, or it's similar to like, um, uh, like crate digging uh, instead exactly. of like Spotify. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I wanted to touch on some of the, the stories that I've heard from, about the record from uh, from some of the guests. I heard that uh, Rivers Cuomo, um, his assistant, sent through a spreadsheet of, of like catchphrases or of sayings that he was using. Um, and that you guys were kind of allowed to pick one or uh, one. I think they said you can pick one. You guys picked three. <laughs> yeah. I'd be curious, obviously, not to give away any of his B-sides. What was it that, um, I guess, how do you pick those catchphrases? What does make it? What doesn't make it? Yeah, oh, it was fascinating, actually. It was just a, I mean, I'm not sure how his mind works, but it was just a collection of these beautiful, poetic um 
um, eye in the sky. Now it's um, it's a very uh, advantageous or adventurous um, sample to go for, just given the nature of how popular that song was uh, or still is. Sorry, um, when you take a sample like this to your label, when you take it to EMI, are they just kind of like, uh, no, what are, you, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, and I didn't even realize. I think I heard it like just in a store or something. Like, and of course, everybody knows that song, but. I don't. I don't think I realised quite how massive it was, but I just heard that little, just that little pre-chorus section, and for some reason it just stuck out in my head, and I was like, it would be so cool to make a song out of that. And then when I went and looked on YouTube, and it's had like sixty million views or something, I was like, <laughs> oh no, um, this is going to be really difficult. And the label had the same response, but um, it's funny. Like sometimes a sample like that is is not is it's easier than you expect and sometimes it's just a sample that you thought would be easy to clear is really, really difficult. So it turned out good, that one. It turned out well. When it comes to clearing samples with bigger acts, is it a thing where you you guys might try and kind of skirt the label in a way and attempt to talk like artist to artist to get that clearance or is it a a thing where only the label speaks to the the other artist label to, to get it cleared and to get it pushed through? Yeah, with the samples, it's all it's all label to label, and um, most most mostly it's publisher to publisher, and um, people. It's it's changed a lot since we made since I left you twenty years ago. Like people recognise sampling now as if they're sampled, it's like their song being used for an ad or any other income stream, and they see it as income stream, and usually they're like, "Cool, you know," um, and a deal's done, and just. It, do you guys have any um, possibly like a little notebook of, of really big samples that you'd like to go for one day or that there's little bits and pieces cut up that you're, you're hoping to use at some point? Uh, in my head I do, yeah, in my head. <laughs> like there's a couple I've got my eye on for the next record, but they're just little fragments of old dusty records, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you mention Cornelius before? The, the song that you've done with Cornelius and um, Kelly Moran uh, near the tail end of the record is, um, it's a gorgeous track. It's very almost un-Avalanches. It's um, a little bit different in, in style and in tempo is, I guess, uh, possibly post-punk almost, mm, like mm. a vibe to it. Is it something that you guys would look at, um, uh, I guess, exploring in, in future records? Because Avalanches, you do have a... I feel like when the music comes on, you can tell it's an avalanche's record. There's a certain vibe to it. There's a great energy to it. This is different in terms of that it just, um, yeah, it, it's it's very different from previous pieces of work that we've heard from you. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that song came about almost in a day in the studio in Los Angeles and um, Kago Cornelius is, we've known for a long time, but he just happened to be there in the city that day and it was my birthday and so he just popped in to say hi and then we ended up this song ended up being born and i've just admired his work just forever you know his first album uh phantasma came out maybe a couple of years before since i left you and i used to listen to it all the time i can still picture the cd that i just like carried around with me everywhere um so that was like one of those dream come true kind of moments working with Kago. And, yeah, that song's kind of deconstructed. There's a sample underneath that it kind of that says music is the light that it can, kind of began with. But um, I don't know, like it's, it's 
I mean, after he had finished recording and Kelly had finished all her parts, like I still cut it up and treat what they performed as samples. But I guess, um, yeah, sonically it's a lot clearer and crisper and more angular. The guitar sounds more angular. It's got a little bit of that post-punk feel. That's, that's true. Yeah. You mentioned Wildflower earlier, which was the follow-up to Since I Left You, your, your debut record. It was 16 years between those records, and um, I know it's been covered heaps in press, so I won't uh, make you sit through the story again. Um, I'm curious, though, as to whether you felt any pressure between that second and third record, so between Wildflower and We Will Always Love You, this new record, uh, yeah, whether there was any pressure in terms of trying to, I guess, subvert expectations again uh, for what uh, what had already come before. Um, well, look, it definitely was, yeah, there was definitely... F- Making Wildflower, as the years went on, the pressure grew of following up since I left you. Um, and I, sometimes um, I, don't, I don't know, like, it's almost like the myth of since I left you grew because there was nothing afterwards, you know, like. Yeah. And um, I wonder if it would have reached this sort of mythical status if we'd followed it up two years later like a regular band, you know. Like I wonder, you know, in a parallel universe if it would still be regarded in the same way. You know, I know it's a very, very beautiful record and I love it, but certainly as the years went on it became this sort of thing and it became harder and harder to finish Wildflower, you know. Um, in terms of uh, this third record, it was it flowed really easily and really quickly and it felt actually like ma- making Since I Left You. I remember the feeling being really similar in terms of being in a in flow just a creative flow not overthinking things not thinking at all really just working on instinct and heart you know and I think that was a big lesson for me creatively as an artist for making wildfire was um I um started to think about it too much and you know because since I left you like I, I was a kid you know when that was being made and it was just pure heart and instinct and joy. And you can hear that in the record. And and then afterwards I remember thinking, God, I had I didn't even really try, you know. I didn't even try to make <laughs> making that record, you know. Like so if I try really, really, really hard, I can make something like ten times better. So this is me like a on a a big learning curve for me as like a young artist. Look, that was the the, the hard lesson I learned making Wildflower was that it's not about how hard you try and it's not how, about how much you think about it and actually the thinking and intellectual part of my brain is actually gets in the way of making beautiful art, you know, for me. So I had, that was the learning curve of making Wildflower. I learned, I learned that the hard way. And so with this record, we were, all the pressure of following up since I left you was gone and we were just in, just in flow, not overthinking it and not cataloging huge uh, archives of samples that, and, you know, this huge big digital library, which we had for Wildflower, of thousands of samples all in categories. And it was just like we just got lost almost in admin of, like, sample organisation, you know, that making this third album was just you grab a record, make a song with it that day. You know, every day was like a new record, a new song, and if, if it turned into a, some, a good idea, we would just finish that song. You know, for since I left you, there was eighteen songs on that record, and we only made eighteen songs or nineteen songs. You know, for Wildflower, there was maybe eighteen songs on the finished record, but we made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So, this third album was back to just making a song, finishing it, and pretty soon, you know, in only two years, you have twenty-five finished songs, and you have a 
have an album, you know. So it was, it was really cool. And um, I think the second part of your question, yeah, we did consciously do something different. I think that's what you were uh, what you were getting at. We can't, at the beginning of this album, we kind of thought, look, we've made two sample-based albums and if we, if we make another one now, no matter how beautiful, no matter how great it is, and even if it's just as great as the first two, we wondered if we would start to become a bit of a known quantity of like, that's what they do. I know what I'm going to get from those guys. And yeah, it's beautiful, but it's just the same as the first two. And we thought, well, is that almost going to be like the big beginning of the end for us creatively? And, and, that, and we've always like, I mean, since I left you was, we wanted it to sound like nothing else, you know, and we just don't want to become um, a, no, a known quantity, I guess. So, I remember we actually we were talking about Actung Baby, which is a strange touchstone, but that U2 album <laughs> that they made after the Joshua Tree. It was a big yeah. curveball for them but a, and a, a brave move, I think, but they, it just gave them another 20 years of their career and it made people go, well, I just don't know what I'm going to get from them now, you know. So we kind of thought, why don't we try and do something like that? And um, it might polarise people, but, you know, we have nothing to prove and we just wanted to keep ourselves interested. We want new experiences. We want to be in the studio with other artists and we want to make a different kind of record and with more instruments as well. Like the, the sample-based records, the first two records, which are pretty much fully sample-based, um, you know, they don't have a lot of bottom end because there's, the only bass you have is the bass in the dusty old records from the 60s or whatever. So this record, you know, we wanted it to just fit in the modern world a bit more and use, you know, bigger kick drums and bass lines and... So we'd always start with a sample, but we weren't afraid to add lots of layers of instrumentation and just just stretch ourselves a bit. Yeah, of course. I think that's um, some of the best art really does come from just trying to do something completely different from that, whatever has previously come before it. Yeah. And I I mean, I still, for me, a lot of this record just still sounds like us and it, which is kind of nice, like inevitably, I guess it's something in our hearts or the, that there's a certain feeling in the music that just hopefully still comes through and sounds like us anyway. Like to me, a big part of this record still, you can tell it's. It definitely, and I'm still struggling to put my finger on exactly what it is, but um, mm-hmm. there we is. We don't know either. Just, yeah. <laughs> there's something that's, that, that's somewhere ingrained in the music that it just, it, you can tell that it's an Avalanche's record without having to read it or like, yeah, it's, it's an incredible, it's a, it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I think it's like, it's just a feeling, but I can't, I can't put my finger on it. It's almost like that, a melancholy, like halfway between happy and sad feeling or something that we can, that our best sort of songs hit on or something. Yeah. I think you guys do that kind of stuff um, really well. Touching on since I left you, you celebrated 20 years since the release of that record uh, in the last few weeks. Congratulations. At the time, uh, back then, did you think that this is what you'd be doing now and, and this is where this kind of, um, where this journey would take you? Like, did you think that if you went back to Robbie in the year 2000 and said, yeah, you're at Perry Farrell's house and <laughs> recording stuff with all these other bands and artists? Yeah, look, I don't think we knew what the journey would hold for us and especially for Tony and I, you know, making Wildflower was a, a long and wild and, uh, cra- crazy journey. Um, I still pinch myself. It's been interesting to reflect actually that um, since I left you, just turned 20 and I, it's still wonderful to be making music, you know, and it, it's, 
I had a funny moment though, just realizing, God, I'm I'm living in a flat, making music still in my bedroom, not very far from the one I was in when I made since I left you, and it's like. <laughs> So everything's changed, but nothing's changed. You know, it's it, it's it's funny to reflect. Do you think that? Um, and I know that, as you mentioned, it was quite a, a long and arduous journey to get from uh, since I left you to Wildflower, and that this new kind of method of making music is a lot more fun. You're learning a lot more. Do you think at any stage, maybe in a few records time, so nothing soon, but do you ever think that you guys will possibly go back, uh, return to a like a really sample-heavy record that might take more than two, three years? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I, it's, it's just it's just what we do. Like there's just that feeling of waking up in the morning and listening to a – there's a pile of old records on, on your desktop that are just like from a junk store and there could be anything in there and you're having a cup of coffee and the sun's shining and you put one of those records on and – all of a sudden, like you hear this tiny little moment, maybe even between songs or in a breakdown between songs, and um, all of a sudden that this light bulb goes off in your head, and you and you're away, and you're making a new piece of music. Like that is the greatest feeling in the world, and, and it's what we do. And every song on this record started with like that as well, with the sample, you know. And it's it's just there's something about sampling and the way that it plays with time and it plays with memory and you know, I love thinking about um, like there might be a record from the 40s and so whoever recorded that has passed away and I'm listening to it and I'm wondering what was going on in their life at that time. Like they might be singing this beautiful song about heartbreak or, you know, lost love or, or, or death or anything. And so there's like all that someone's whole experience is captured on that record and then um, – then someone's owned that record, you know, maybe for 20 years and maybe they've listened to that song while they're going through a breakup or something and spilt wine on it and, add, and added to the crackles <laughs> and then I then that record crosses my path and all the crackles are there from someone who's listened to it a million times and then there's the original sort of soul and spirit of the singer captured on that record as well and then I sample it and make a new song out of it and that process is just so beautiful to me, you know, and um, it's what we do and I think it's it'll never go away. You know, it was more just like um, we could almost physically didn't have it in us to do another record like that again right now, but I'm sure, I'm sure we will again. Do you still enjoy going out to record stores and kind of crate diving and, and just finding those obscure um, or just, uh, yeah, random records? Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. Uh, after the, the, we finished Wildflower, I got rid of my whole record collection like I probably kept about 200 records that really meant a lot to me and records that I'd use to make our albums and stuff like that. A few old records of my father's I kept. Everything else I got rid of. And so it's been lovely to have just have no records again and then just be able to wander through a, a junk store or a record store or whatever city I'm in and, and have room in my life for new music to come in again. And it's a beautiful thing. It's like being a kid again, you know. <laughs> How many records did you have at one point? Uh, it was probably like oh, it was eight, eight or nine thousand or something. Not that many compared to like some of the you know the collections I've seen. But <laughs> still, yeah. still a very decent number. Yeah, yeah. When when you offload something like that, is it? Um, I guess whether it's a private sale or you're selling to a store, I imagine that they feel. Um, quite 
uh, honored the fact that uh, in terms of sampling and, and records, the avalanches are so well known and, and um, so famous that they've kind of taken in part of a history themselves. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think the guy knew. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, that was easier for me because I just didn't want it. I just was like, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I made sure, like, I spent weeks going through them all and keeping everything that I'd used to sample to make one any of our records. So I, I wanted to keep those albums. And then, um, yeah, I just had that moment of realisation of, like, I'll probably never listen to half of these records ever again, you know, and, and why am I keeping them and lugging them around? And they're just possessions in a way. And yeah. For you, when you are crate diving, is there anything that kind of do you um – go looking for like a cover art or is there something that I guess jumps out to you uh, more than yeah. anything when you're looking for something random? Oh, now it's pretty random. Like I, when I was younger, I was much more like um, into the, the label or the musicians that played on it or oh, this label is an offshoot of that label and, okay, cool, this might have something good on it. And, you know, there, were, there was a me- methodology behind why I would choose certain records. Or, but now it's just I just, I don't know. Uh, just more instinct, you know, sometimes just the cover or the mood I'm in that day, you know. That's very fair. Uh, mm. Lastly, do you have a um, a favourite record store in Melbourne or in LA or wherever? Oh, look, especially in Tokyo, there's a few really, really favourite stores that are pretty amazing. But, um, yeah, in Melbourne, Plug 7 is, is really great. <laughs> awesome. Robbie, thank you very much for being on the show today. It has been um, an absolute pleasure to have you on. So, yeah, thank you again for, for your time. Oh, thank you, Simon. It's been great to chat, man. Thanks a lot. And that's our show. We Will Always Love You, the third studio record by The Avalanches, is out tomorrow. We've included a link in our show notes if you want to go and buy the record. We want to say a massive thank you to Robbie Chater and the Avalanches for their time. And also say thanks to Miriam from EMI for her assist with today's interview. We don't have a playlist this week, but please do yourself a favour and go buy their record from the store in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe wherever you get your pods and stay up to date when we release new episodes. New shows are released each Thursday morning with guest playlists streaming on Spotify at the same time. You can follow the playlist profile on Spotify you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.